We hope you enjoy this message from Todd Hunter from the book of Amos, and we apologize for the distortion on this recording. So this morning before we move on in our ordinary time studying the Minor Prophets and before we move on in Amos, I want to say, I don't think I've ever said this before in our years together, um, it's not only a joy to be a teacher and to teach you, it's my gift, so I, you know, of course find some joy in it, but it's also a very big responsibility. And uh, so I want to walk back um, some things from last Sunday. Um, there's a lot at stake when we read these texts and when we try to you know, place them before our minds and try to live into them and obey them. And I'm not 100% comfortable with some elements of last week, so let's uh, walk that back a bit and see what we can make of it. So when I first felt a little discomfort about it, I thought, well, maybe it's, do you remember last week, those eight oracles, just like, just, just like, you know, pounding on your head or pounding on your shoulders, you know, all these things that are wrong. And so first I thought, well, maybe it's just the scope and scale of this problem. And I thought, you know, maybe I inadvertently sort of, you know, gave off the vibe that like, you know, the sky is falling and I don't think the sky is falling. I think God is 100% in control. And then I thought, well, maybe no, it's my own stuff, my own perfectionism, my own need to fix things. Like you can't, you know, like I want to say to Amos, well, you can't just lay eight oracles at my feet and expect me to do nothing, you know. So I thought, well, maybe it's just that, you know, let's, you know, get out there and do something about it. But I'm not sure that's exactly it. But something along those lines, because what do we actually do about this kind of stuff? Like, I was reading some papers this week from my doctoral students, and a young Korean wrote in one of his papers this. He said, these days, Korean young people are often called oposede. It means the generation giving up on five elements, meaning young Koreans who are giving up on getting married, giving up on having children, giving up on dating, giving up on relationships at all with others, and giving up on owning a house. And so a recent study of young South Koreans has shown that almost six out of 10 people in their 20s and 30s are just giving up on life. Oh, posede. And you should read that kind of stuff and you think, uh, okay. Like, if you're a Korean Christian, what do you do? If you're an American Christian who just cares about global issues, I mean, what the heck are we supposed to do like this? Because I'm telling you, ordinary time has just started. And this drumbeat from the minor prophets is going to go on. It's going to go on all summer until we get to Advent. Of just trying to get us to notice what's real about our world. Well, what do we do? Because we hear and read these things and they just seem wrong. You know, they gnaw at us, at least in me, they gnaw at us in very deep places. And that, that sense of, you know, sort of being gnawed at seems right and good. And I suppose in some ways it is. And there's, of course, a sadness that can go along with it when you read stuff like that, or pain, or even temporary depression that can be associated with just trying to take that kind of stuff in. But it leaves the question, okay, so what do we do? Like sort of God the Holy Spirit who inspired these prophets to speak, we're left reading them in 2015. What are we supposed to do about this? And this is what I want to say before we move on. 
I think that actually our ordinary time theme helps us. That we now read these texts, we now read things like Amos through the life, which is to say the words and works of Jesus and his teaching about the inbreaking of the kingdom. Now, lots of you will know that maybe the most important mentor in my life over the last 25 years was Dallas Willard. And I would say, and I'm sure lots of people would agree with me, that maybe Dallas's greatest contribution over his sort of 30-year Christian career of writing is the 20 or 30 pages in The Divine Conspiracy in which he takes the kingdom of God the coming of Jesus and the inbreaking of, of the kingdom and how that reality sort of corrects the way we often miss the gospel and how we miss it on the right, thinking that the gospel is simply about our sins being forgiven so we can go to heaven when we die. But it's been as frequently missed, and especially in the Western world post-World War II, it's been as frequently missed on the left, which says the gospel is all about fixing social sins you know, like systemic sins, the kind of things you read about in the Minor Prophets. And so the gospel then gets reduced to fixing social sins, and of course part of the reason for this is that what we choose to fix is almost always culturally derived and self-determined. So we pick these like acts of righteousness that feel good to us or are somehow connected to us, but that's not exactly the noticing and following the inbreaking of the kingdom. So then what do we do? And I just want to suggest this is the best idea I have and just put it before you and try it on for size. The best idea I have is that we just take Jesus seriously and we trust and follow Jesus into life in the kingdom as he taught was best. And in so doing, we form a union. This I think is very important. We form a union with Jesus from which as John 7 promised, out of our inner beings would come gushing torrents of living water. So flooding the cubicles where you work. Now if you're Condoleezza Rice, and you can have a say in South Korea, go for it. Flood. Flood governments, flood ambassadors. But if you're just stuck in a cubicle at an electronics company, well, it's only out there that your inner life can shine, so to speak, or make a difference. Or, as John 15 put it, talking about union, just abide in me, Jesus said. Like, that's the ticket. Just abide in me, and you will bear much fruit. So I want to say, I don't think the sky is falling. And if you sort of heard me saying, look, get out there and do something, uh, that's not what I'm saying either. I'm, I'm just trying to find a way to take these, these texts serious. If you want to know what I really think, and of course I could obviously be wrong about this, but if you're just keeping it real, I, I felt led that the Lord wanted us as a congregation to read these texts through ordinary time that he was going to somehow just gently, over a period of 26 weeks, that he would just gently work on our souls and that he would help us when it was all said and done before we get to the glory of Advent, that something would have happened in us where we will have been taught to engage faithfully, non-anxiously, 
but fruitfully with this incredibly changing world. I mean, that's the dream here. That, I mean, that's the vision for me. All right, are we good? Everybody good? Okay, let's roll. All right, so Amos uh, chapters three through five, which we're um, taking our reading from this morning. Amos is just going on pointing out religious practices that the people of Israel were doing, but that underneath these practices there was no real hunger or thirst for God. I mean, that's kind of an adequate summary of James, I'm sorry, of Amos uh, 3 through 5. So one of the ways he gets at this positively is he says, seek good. So I mean, we, you wouldn't think we might have to not think about a simple word like seek, but I think we should stop here and think, well, what does it mean to seek? So to seek means to attempt to find something or to obtain something or to achieve something. And this is why I think it's important. When God asks through his prophets for us to seek something, do you know what's really going on there? Is an attempt to reveal to us our most real desires. That's what's happening. What do you actually seek? Like, what do you actually want? What do, like, what's most real in your life about that? And of course, what God's trying to draw them to is seek Yahweh. A is the object of your trust. Put your trust in him, and I'll say more about that in a moment. And then seek good, as the text says, as the way to real life. Like if you want to know what it means to be human, it means to seek the good of others. But again, can I just say, I mean, if you want to talk about systemic injustice, we could go beyond the kind of loan sharks we talked about last week or whatever. I don't remember what we talked about. But we could go beyond that stuff to what about this as a deep taproot of systemic injustice? That the average human being today believes that what it means to be human is to discover and to fulfill my desires of whatever they might be. Now look, at a minute, you don't have to be a genius here. At a minimum, what that means is you all become objects to me. You're extras in a movie all about me. Because when life devolves into simply what it means to be basically human is to discover and fulfill my desires of, what any, of whatever kind, then everybody else now is an extra in a movie about me. But if we listen to this text, seek the good of others, and you will be human as God intended, that's obviously a very different thing. But it raises the question, well, who would or could do this? And of course, the only person who could do this, who could seek Yahweh as the object of their trust, and to seek good as the way to real human life, are those whose most real desires are bent in that direction. Which, of course, then just raises the further question, well, Todd, what do I do if I have disordered desires? I don't know, I've never had any. I mean, come on. So what do we do with our disordered desires? What do we do with our attachments to things that aren't healthy? And I just want to say, and this is the place I'm going to try to bring us back to over and over again this summer, is that in peace, trusting the love and grace of God, just to begin to be honest about your habitual thinking, your habituated desires, your will, your genuine heart motives in peace. It's not going to do any good to do it in anxiety. 
We say, okay, Hunter, where am I going to get the peace? We've got to make your way to actually trusting the love and grace of God. And then in peace, you can just begin to notice and deal with this stuff. So Amos tries to help the people of his day deal with this when he asks this rhetorical question, why do you long for the day of the Lord? It's going to be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear. And what's happening here is that the people of Israel thought that the coming of the day of the Lord meant that the Lord was going to judge everybody else around them and that it would then be good for Israel because the Lord would conquer all their foes. And I don't expect you to really remember, but if you can think back to when we were studying Genesis together, we spent a lot of time talking about the doctrine of election. And I said to you several times, this is actually a very important doctrine in the Bible. And it's because, this, you can see why here. Israel thought that election was unto privilege, unto favor. And that when the day of the Lord comes, he'll bless us and he'll judge everybody else around us. But what they failed to understand is that the day of the Lord means the day when God comes to judge all sin, even Israel's. Because remember, what have I taught you? The day of the Lord, the justice or the righteousness, the judgment of God is when he puts the world to rights. Well, Israel needed put to rights too, not just the nations around them. Now, here's another thing I don't think I've ever said much about, but you've, you know you frequently hear me quote the message. And Eugene's another great um, friend and mentor. I love the message. Um, but I just want you to know, I know it's not a word-for-word -word translation. If, if, you, if you want one of those, learn to read the Greek Testament. Or if you don't want to do that, get an NASB if you want. And if you want something a little more readable, get an ESV. So having said that, this is one of the passages that made the message get famous. Um, when, when people heard this, they just went, oh my gosh. I mean, I'm talking you know, early to mid-90s. When people heard this idiom, because what Eugene was trying to do was, he knows what he's doing. He wasn't trying to do a word-for-word -word translation. He was trying to do idiom to idiom thinking that the, the real sort of heart-level meanings is in the idiom. So listen to this. You thought the day of the Lord was for everyone else, but I can't stand your religious meetings. I'm fed up with your conferences and conventions. I want nothing to do with your religious projects, your pretentious slogans and goals. I'm sick of your fundraising schemes, your public relations and image making. I've had all I can stand of your noisy ego music. When was the last time you sung to me? People read that and just went, oh, okay, so that's what it was like to hang out with a prophet. <laughs> I mean, think of people reading that in the 90s when Christianity was still a big business. And book sales and music sales and big conventions, and it's not like that anymore. Those, those days are pretty much gone. But at the time, that was really real. And what, what Amos is getting at here is that, yeah, the people of Israel were offering their burnt offerings. But do you know what a burnt offering is? It was meant to be kind of like what we think of as baptism, an outward sign of something being consumed, which is to mean total devotion to God. Yet their whole civil system, led by them, was bent against and was abusing the poor. That's what's underlying this text. They were in charge. And all their systems was for them. And so you can see, they thought, well, when God comes, he'll just do more of that. 
And, and Amos is saying, no, that's not the way it's going to be. When God comes, it's actually going to challenge your worldview as well. Or they were giving peace offerings. You know what peace offerings are? Again, they're, they're a symbol of reconciling relationship with God. And so what's happening here in Amos is that God's people were performing the correct rituals, but their lack of care for the poor revealed that their worship was superficial. What God really wanted, what the Levitical system was meant to facilitate, and what would transform their worship was a true inner righteousness. Did you catch that? A true inner righteousness that was expressed in love and humble, obedient service to God and love and service to neighbors. But that's not what was happening in their inner reality. You know what was happening in, the inner, in their inner reality? is much like we do, we do it in different ways, they were fudging their trust in God. And so they had put up in their worship spaces idols and images of foreign idols and false gods. And basically what they were thinking is, okay, the Assyrians have their gods. We'll put one of their gods up in our worship space, and that way the Assyrians won't attack us. That's what's going on here. I mean, this is like in-your-face fudging. So are you starting to feel this? So they're giving the right ritual things, but in their hearts they're completely fudging. It's sort of like doing it with you know, their fingers crossed behind their back, because just in case Yahweh doesn't come through... Well, then this false god from Assyria, maybe he'll protect us. And of course, look at me, it flies right in the face. If, if any Jew who's ever been born knows anything, he knows the Shema. Hear, O Israel, there is how many gods? One God. If a Jew knew anything, a Jew knew that. And so at the most basic fundamental level, they're fudging, which comes out of their real wanter. Are you tracking with me here? What they really want is not loyalty to Yahweh. What they really want is safety. And so if safety can be gained by compromising a burnt offering sort of life that's fully devoted to Yahweh... Well, then I'll, I'll take the fudging because if I'm honest, what I really want is safety, not full devotion to God. Now, do you see what I'm saying? And, and you just have to have the courage to face that. And you're never going to have the courage to face it. You won't face it in peace until you wrestle down that as I pray over you every week in the benediction, God loves you as you are and invites you to follow him as you are and he'll just begin to deal with you if you will let him. So then Amos, speaking for God, says, so do you know what I want in all this? Anybody care what I want? You know, like God's sort of on the periphery here somewhere, and so he finally kind of breaks through through Amos and says, does anybody really care what I want? Okay, here's what I want. I want justice, oceans of it. I want fairness, rivers of it. That's all I want. And of course, he's saying that because, again, I've taught you this over and over and over again. What Israel was doing systemically, we do in our marriages and friendships and workplaces. When you don't, here's Israel, when you fail to actually trust God, then you have to secure yourself on the backs of others. You will have no other choice 
Don't kid yourself that there's some neutral ground to stand. There is no neutral ground to stand. You are either going to secure yourself in God or in God's love, or you're going to secure yourself in some other way. A friendship, a marriage, sex, money, um, medicating yourself, whatever. And so this is just a whole nation was doing it. Israel not securing themselves in God was then attempting to secure themselves in all these um, systemic, cultural, dehumanizing ways of treating others, all against the backdrop of a kind of religiosity. And so what God is saying through James is that if you'll change this, if you'll change this internal reality, it will show a change of heart that will be expressed then in treating others different and then in honest worship. I don't remember where Eugene wrote this, but Peterson says, believing without loving is what gives religion a bad name. So you just stop and ask yourself, you know, what, what about all these social studies? That they're, they're from everywhere um, that show that, the, that religion increasingly has a bad name. Believing without loving is what gives religion a bad name. Believing without loving destroys lives. Believing without loving turns the best of creeds into a weapon of oppression. And that's what Amos is confronting. You, you say you have a heart for the, the, the Levitical code of giving your offerings. But what's really going on is you're using it and Yahweh to oppress others so that you can feel safe. So again, if you were to say, well, what's maybe a, a way forward, I, I would point you to our gospel reading this morning. That the way forward, it, you know, Hebrew says that Jesus is the exact image. He's the perfect representation of our Father in heaven. And so the way we talk about that theologically now, we have a name for that, it's called incarnation. Think of the word carne, just means flesh. So incarnation means God who is spirit took on flesh. And in that, we then see what it means to be human in the image of God. And Jesus was consistently confronted with human need and pain. And what we see in his life, that's why these miracles, as we tend to debate them, you know, are not unimportant because they show us a, a, a way of God that in his healings and driving out of unclean spirits, as we read this morning, this fulfills the vision of Amos. This fulfills the vision of God's purpose for his people that rather than exploiting those around us who are weak or marginalized like lepers or women with an issue of blood or somebody with an unclean spirit, rather than marginalizing them, dehumanizing them so that we can then use them to secure ourselves, Jesus shows us a different way, an alternative way of being human. Among all else he does, he does that. And of course, the 12 and the church are invited to, to go with him there, to face the world's pain, and to do the same thing, to see the pain and injustice, and as we're saying in these cards we've given you from Titus, be eager to do good. So what we see here in the gospel readings in Jesus is kind of a model of moment-by-moment -moment incarnation. But so here's one of those moments where I need all of your undivided attention. Because I know we do this all the time. I mean, incarnation, my whole you know, Christian experience has been used as, a, as an analogy that the more I think about it, I don't think the analogy works at all. And that, you I mean, you hear this in missional literature, you hear it in evangelism literature, you hear it all over the place that we need to incarnate ourselves in our lives 
I don't think that works. We're not spirit taking on flesh the way Jesus did. I don't think that's our analogy. Our analogy is student. Our analogy is ambassador. We're a student of Jesus, a disciple, a mathetes, and we're an ambassador of his kingdom. So we're, in a sense, following the incarnation that he already did. So then I want to get back to that question. So then, okay, Hunter, what do we do? And this is what I want to say to you that I hope will work against either me inadvertently doing this or you hearing these prophets in ways that make you feel anxious and neurotic and like you have to do something and become like me, a fixer. Don't go there. I've been there. You don't want to go. So you say, well, what do we do? Okay, Jesus came preaching the kingdom of God, right? So someday if you want, you go home and get out an electronic or paper concordance and just look up the phrase, the kingdom of God, and look at the verbs attached to it. And here's what you'll never find. Go extend it. How many times have you been told in your Christian career that you should be extending the kingdom of God? You'll never find that verb. It's not there. Nor do you find a verb like build. How many times have you heard preachers say that the church should be building the kingdom of God? Well, the kingdom of God is the expression of God's own very being. How are you going to extend that? How are you going to build on God's own person? No, you know what the verbs are in the New Testament concerning the kingdom? Enter. Place your confidence in this new reality so much so that you would enter this reality and that in that reality you would be made safe, and being, having been made safe and secure, then you would be free to be non-anxiously, non-neurotically, non-perfectionistic, non-fixer, ambassador of the kingdom. But you first have to have that kind of trust that one would enter and that one would receive. That's the other verb you see in the New Testament concerning the kingdom. You receive it as a gift. Place your confidence in it. And then we who are flesh, we have flesh to flesh then interacting with the needs that become present to us. Probably those needs in South Korea that I just read to you, are, are at least not in a systemic way, are never going to become present to me in, in a way other than my newsfeed on my phone. But this week, Friday, I got a call from a young Korean girl who's 23 years old who's caught in the grip of this. And so it was made present to me. Well, I can deal with that. I can deal with what God makes present to me. I cannot deal with big systemic issues that aren't in my purview. Now, God may show me little ways. He may give us little ways, but I think you see... What I'm seeing here, what we do is just in our everyday ordinary life, we work and strive for justice. But if you don't hear anything else I uh, say this morning, <clears throat> maybe if you don't hear anything else I say in this whole series, we have to do it from a deep inner rest and security that's found only in entering and receiving the kingdom of God. If we're going to engage even in a little barrio in Costa Mesa, 
if no matter what, and if as we engage in trafficking issues, it doesn't matter what we might engage with. What's fundamental is that we do so on the basis of a deep inner rest and security found in the kingdom of God. And that's what I think I failed to say last week. I don't think that came across. That this has to be engaged with from a deep inner rest. So landing this plane, what, what Amos has wanted us to see so far is that the key to experiencing the presence of God is an interhuman justice. It's not religion. It's, it's a play between human beings who are becoming God's people for the sake of others. And that the authentic test of righteousness of Israel's religion was not keeping the Levitical laws of worship, but in sincere love of God and practicing righteousness towards the poor. Now, this shouldn't surprise us, right? Jesus said, what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and will, and love your neighbors yourself. For that is the summary of the law. That's what the Levitical system was always pointing to. So as we come to a quiet time, I want to try to give you an imagination for this. And so I want to bring us back to this word union. And to give you a picture of Christian spirituality. So you might want to close your eyes here and, and, um, and use your imagination as you hear these words. So union in action. Excuse that union in action. Union in action with the purposes of the triune God. That is to say, bringing life wherever we can, bringing life within the already existing rhythms of our days and weeks. That is Christian spirituality. Union in Jesus. Think John 15. Union in Jesus. It's union in action with the purposes of the triune God. Just gently, unassumingly bringing life within the already existing rhythms of our days and weeks. That this is fundamentally Christian spirituality. So then you just begin to ask, where do I see God in action? at work or school or neighborhood, and how might I join with him there?